Let's take our Bibles together. We're in Genesis. As we're nearing the end of this book, we're looking at chapter 46. We're looking at verses, uh, all of 46 through chapter 47, verse 12. Now, I'm going to read some of it, and I'm going to summarize some of it as we go. Genesis chapter 46. Sounds like you're turning in your Bibles. That's an encouraging sound. Hear God's word. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. I'll pause here. The next section begins, Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Now these are Jacob's sons, grandsons, a lot of names here. But I want you to take note as we move down to Verse 26, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were with him, who were with his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keeping keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph, chapter 40, so Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then, J then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their departments. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, you call for your word to be preached. And so that is what I want to do right now. Lord, we all are under this truth. Would you... That is a fact, but God, would you give us the attitude of mind and heart that humbles ourselves under your word, that we may be taught by you, that we may be fed by you. Holy Spirit, have freedom among us. Move in our hearts. Adjust our thinking. Bring us to faith for those that are outside of you right now. And bring repentance to the rebelling. God, we know this living and active word will accomplish your purposes. So, God, do that now. For the glory of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Well, if, if, you're a, if your own childhood experience was, was a healthy one, if you had loving parents, you knew that your father and mother loved you, not primarily because they told you, their words you cherished them, I'm sure, but it wasn't just words, right? You knew that they attended to you, they, that they would protect you, and they tried to comfort you whenever you were hurt or, or for whatever you might have experienced, even, even when that hurt was caused by your own rebellion or your own foolishness, your own sin. That's that special relationship that a loved child has with her or his parents. Well, God chose Abraham. God made him a promise. And that promise indicated a special relationship, a covenant relationship. And that covenant relationship would extend to Abraham's offspring forever. And that covenant relationship would, would fix what the first humans, what Adam and Eve, what they broke in their rebellion against God. That relationship would be a relationship of love. The Hebrew word in the Bible is chesed. It's how God describes himself in relation to his people. You will see this in Exodus 34, 6. It's translated this way. God is abounding. God says about himself, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's chesed, God's covenant love. Well, that covenant love is on display in the Bible text that we have before us, and I want to show that to you. 
God showed Jacob. He showed him, you matter to me. He showed him and he told him, I'm watching over you and I'll heal your afflictions. Now hearing, Jacob hearing that his son Joseph was alive and that his own family would be provided for in Egypt, Jacob began that journey from Canaan southward to Egypt. And this is verse 1. It tells us there that he stopped at Beersheba. And there he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And that location, he stopped there. It wasn't just random. It was significant because it was a reminder of God's covenant. Genesis 21, 33. And these are things that he would have been told. They would have been passed down to him. Genesis 21, 33. At Beersheba, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree and called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Isaac, his father, Abraham's son, built an altar there when the Lord had appeared to him, affirming the very promise that was made to Abraham. And there he heard, this is Genesis 26, 24. There Isaac heard, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So when the Lord appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were told that Abraham's offspring, their offspring, would one day possess the land of Canaan. And here now we have Jacob on his way to Egypt. So it was very fitting for him to seek the Lord. See, Jacob had a particular concern about going to Egypt because of the experience of his grandfather and his father Isaac. It didn't go well for Abraham when he went to Egypt because of a famine. Jacob's experiencing a famine. He's about to go to Egypt. It did not go well for Abraham. What happened? Apart from the Lord's intervention, he would have lost Sarah, his wife, to Pharaoh. And it didn't help that Abraham told a lie about her. Well, she's my sister. When faced with a famine in his own time, Isaac, Isaac had been told by the Lord specifically, do not go down to Egypt. But here now, as we see in our text, the Lord spoke to Jacob, saying, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So here in this, God is saying to Jacob, look, you and your offspring, they matter to me. I'll be watching over you, and I'll heal your afflictions. So from this specific promise from the Lord to Jacob, as he heard it, in a night vision, when he offered the sacrifice at Beersheba, from this specific promise, I have three, three words that will really summarize God's promise to Jacob. These serve as my headings this morning. The first one is significance. Significance. Second, protection. And third, comfort. Significance, protection, and comfort. And for us who are the new covenant people of God in Christ, we have the same assurance of God's covenant love. I'll try to make that application this morning. First of all, significance. Have you ever wanted to be invisible? And I, I think maybe there are times in our lives perhaps that you felt like that if you felt horribly embarrassed or, or received in a moment some unwanted attention. But the idea of in, being invisible, it, it certainly makes for good Movies, right? A terrifying villain who's invisible. I remember the, the movie Predator, this thing in the forest that just killed people. You couldn't see it. Or maybe just the idea of being invisible as a kind of a skill of a superhero, 
right? Thwarting evil. But we get it. For physically being invisible in a, fig, in a, in a physical sense, uh, that's, not, that's really the stuff of science fiction. But I think it's true. Usually the feeling of being invisible in a figurative sense is not really something that anyone relishes. Nobody wants to feel invisible. If your parents say they love you but don't ever take note of you or are even aware of what you're doing, their, their words of love seem empty. And whether it's the wallflower at the dance or the guy working in that back office that no one ever notices or appreciates, what people want is for someone, and most especially those who love us, to say, you matter to me, to feel significant. Now, there have been a lot of years since God made the promise to Abraham. A lot of years. And that promise was affirmed, but there's long periods of time when the patriarchs are operating based on the word of the Lord, and, and God's word is true, and he never, he never failed on his promises. But, but every once in a while, in a moment of uncertainty, Jacob, and probably Isaac and Abraham too, needed to know that what was happening was significant, that they were significant to God. Jacob knew the promise from his father. He had heard it from Abraham. But here they are. They're on the brink of starvation. And to survive, they've got to go to Egypt. They have to leave the land that God promised to them. This doesn't make sense. This is the land we're supposed to possess. So when it, as, he, as Jacob was about to go to Egypt, he heard from the Lord, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there, hear this, for there I will make you into a great nation. There. I will make you into a great nation. So Jacob understood from, from the Lord, your family matters to me. It was the affirmation of a hundred-year-old promise to his grandfather. You will become a great nation. Now, I just want to take a, a momentary aside here. There's just something important to note about Scripture. And this is, this is particularly applicable when we read the narratives, when we read the stories. They're true. But when we look at the stories in the Bible, we need to keep in mind that the actual events, and hear me carefully on this, that the actual events themselves, though ordained by God, they're not inspired. The events are not inspired. And I'm making a very subtle distinction here. What has been written about them is inspired. That's been breathed out by God. What's been written about these events, that's what's inspired. God's word about the events are God's actualizing power. God speaks and, and he accomplishes. And the way that he speaks to us through the written word, that's where the power is. We can observe events that the written word speaks about, but the event itself isn't what is transformative. It is the word about the event. I hope you get that distinction. And I say that here because in this story about Jacob, he himself, the, the actor, Jacob, the real person, may not be aware of it or experience it, but it is in the telling of these stories, the Holy Spirit breathed out account, that's where the power is. This was very true for the Israelites as they are about to cross the Jordan. They're hearing this story about their origins as a people. It was inspired text to them, and it is true for us today. So having said that, what is the evidence of God's covenant love for his people 
and demonstrating that they are significant to him. Again, from the perspective of the Israelites, they're looking back. They've just come out of Egypt. They're looking back. They see in verses 8 through 26, and it's that section I didn't read, but I'll review it here. 8 through 26, their forefathers, they see in that list the sons and the grandsons of Jacob, their tribal heads. So the names, and you can see these as you move through the text. I think I've got them in order. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, and Asher. They're not in birth order. They're in significance. But look at the summarizing statement in verse 27, if you've got your Bible open. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, 70 is important. In the Bible, sevens, when, when you see a seven, most often it's, it's to be understood as a kind of a, a perfect number. It represents completion. The example, just a simple, obvious one. There are seven days in the week. On the seventh day, God rested, perfecting his creation work. There are probably over 800 references to sevens or sevenfold in the Bible. So what we have here, the text is telling us about what happened to Jacob. Again, the inspired text is telling us the story. Seventy persons, ten times the, the complete, meaning the entire company of Jacob's family migrated to Egypt. Now, it's 70. It's complete, but it's not significant yet. See, over 400 years later, and again, the reader of the text has the perspective of history. 400 years later, that number would balloon to over 600,000, according to Numbers 232. And that's listing the fighting men. You add women and children, that number could be as high as 2 million. 2 million. I know there's some disputes about that 600,000 number because of uh, uh, ambiguities in, in translating the Hebrew so that you get that 600,000. But the key here, and we see this, having looked at this historical event, 70 persons, the complete, the totality of Jacob's family goes to Egypt. And then what we see as a result, the significance of what they became, God fulfilling his promise. Uh, Exodus 1, 7 says, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That land was Goshen. That land was Egypt. The promise made to Jacob was a reality for the Israelites leaving in the Exodus. So it was significant and the, the nation was large. So promise fulfilled. But it was wasn't only how large the nation would become that revealed its greatness. It is that God began to reveal the trajectory of his redemptive purposes in Jacob's time. Hear me on this. God began to reveal the trajectory of his redemptive purposes even in Jacob's time. So I want to remind you that God's plan to rescue his people from the curse of sin was hinted at in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, we learned there, that would one day crush the head of the serpent. Ever since God made that promise, his people had been looking for him, the seed of the woman. And so we have here in Genesis 46, 28, that there's another detail that comes to light. Again, 
We're looking back in this and we can see this, how it's unfolding in God's plan. For Jacob, it's just, it's a situation, it's a circumstance. Verse 28 says this, he, that is Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Now, you could just take it as a footnote. He sent Judah, Jacob sent Judah ahead of him, to Joseph to show the way. Now, to this point in the story of Jacob's sons, Joseph had been the prominent one, right? Initially, of course, because he was favored by by Jacob, but more recently because he had been used of the Lord to rescue his family. And the rest of the sons, as we've seen through, through Genesis, they're either not mentioned much or like Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and Judah included, we have mostly seen their folly, their foolishness, their sinfulness. But now Judah is shown as leading. It's not an insignificant thing. So why is this important? Is he the seed of the woman? Well, we know that's not the case. We later discover that the seed is in his line. Judah's showing the way. Prefiguring a reality. The seed of the woman is in his line. So we just skip forward to chapter 49. When Jacob blesses his sons, he says this to Judah. It's a unique blessing. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Who's Jacob talking about? Perhaps he thinks he's talking about Judah. Royal honor and the obedience of peoples is the specific of Judah's blessing. But we know from reading through the end of Genesis that Judah never becomes a king. So what does that mean? We have to move past the Pentateuch, past the first five books of the Bible. And we find that, that Judah's distant son is King David. And then when we come to the New Testament, we learn that David's distant and greater son is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ par excellence, Jesus, who is and who will one day be acknowledged by every knight as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Small, seeming footnote, showing us the trajectory of God's redemptive purposes. So when, when the Lord spoke to Jacob and told him that he would be a great nation, he spoke not only of the multitude of his offspring, but the one to whom that greatness would be purposed. The greatness of Israel was purposed towards a singular individual and the revealing of the Christ, the offspring, the singular seed of Abraham, that became, he became the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, if you're a child of God today, you belong to an innumerable company of people, as it says in Revelation 7-9, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages who will one day stand before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, representing a righteousness given to them by Christ. But you're in this people on one condition. 
You can belong to the new covenant people who are bought with the blood of the Son of God, the very Son of God who was slain to take away sin and give you perfect righteousness. You are part of this people if and only if you have confessed Christ. And if you have confessed Christ, being part of this company, being part of this people, know this, you matter to God. You matter to God. When, when Jesus spoke with his disciples, and he asked them, who do people say that I am? He got varying answers from the disciples about what the talk was. One of the prophets, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? What do you really believe about me? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And to that, Jesus gave this answer. He said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So if you've made that confession like Peter did and have joined together with others that confess the same, then get this, you are significant because of Christ, but you're significant. The very gates of hell will not be able to stand against us. Because of the covenant love of God, the church matters. The people of God living today as we are in this spiritual Egypt, we are not invisible. Jesus loved us, it says in Ephesians 5, and gave himself up for us to purify us so that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. Jesus does not die for that which is insignificant. Again, it is not that we're significant in and of ourselves. It is simply God's electing grace to say, I've chosen you. And because God has chosen you, you matter, not just for now, but forever. Jesus, in, in teaching in the wilderness, in John chapter 6, he said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And no one can take them out of my hand. No one can take them out of the Father's hand. You can't be lost. You matter in Christ forever. You are significant. Now, another aspect of God's chesed, his covenant love towards Jacob and his people is preservation. Preservation. To preserve, we use that word in all kinds of different ways. It's what you do with berries, right? When you, when you want to make jam out of them, you preserve them. A preserve is the place where endangered animals are kept safe from hunters and poachers. Preserve is what you do with old slides and photos when you digitize them. Preserve is what they do to pepperoni so that you don't have to find it in the refrigerator section, but somewhere on the shelf, and it's at room temperature. It's amazing. I don't know what chemicals are in there. But it's preserved. And, and seemingly, it could last 50, 100 years. and Nothing would change. It's the reason you have a fridge or a freezer, to preserve, right? To preserve is to protect from loss, from harm, from corruption. That's not just about food. It's about the eternal well-being of God's people. And I take it that, that what God promised to Jacob in his family was that he'd preserve them. The Lord told Jacob that he should not fear to go to Egypt 
And then in verse 4, he said this, listen, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. Now, I don't know what was in Jacob's mind. Go to Egypt, seven years, eight, 20 years, and then we'll head back. I mean, it would be 400 years. But God was saying, I'm sending you there. I am with you. I will preserve you. They're not they're going to return to the land that the Lord promised to give them. Jacob didn't know when. But that was a promise that the Lord made to preserve them from harm and corruption. Now, of course, the directive to go to Egypt meant that they would survive the worldwide famine. So that was preservation in itself, physical preservation. When they settled there, God also provided that they would not find a hostile enemy, but rather they would find particular favor. And this is very unusual from the king of Egypt. Verses, uh, chapter 47, 5 and 6. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men, put them in charge of my livestock. I mean, Pharaoh's attitude towards these foreigners was, was nothing short of just mind-boggling. This favor didn't come out of the blue. Of course, it was the Lord's doing, right, in sending Joseph ahead of them. It was the Lord's doing in giving Joseph dreams of his own elevation over his brothers. It was from the Lord that that telling of the dreams to his brothers would so anger them that they'd want to kill him but end up selling him as a slave to Egypt. Of course, it was the, the Lord's doing to give Pharaoh those troubling dreams of their prosperity and then the famine. And it was, of course, by the Lord's doing that only, only Joseph could possibly interpret that. And of course, it was the Lord's doing that Pharaoh would look to Joseph. Now, there's a wise and discerning man who can handle this, who can manage the plenty and take us through the famine. Though God preserved the lives of Jacob's family through the plenty of Egypt, through Joseph's skill, and through Pharaoh, that physical protection wasn't his only preservation. God also preserved their faith. You can see this, how the story unfolds. God protected them from the corruption of the pagan culture. And how did God do this? Now, again, Joseph has it in mind. I want my father and brothers to have the best of the land. Pharaoh agrees. That land of Goshen, it's that uh, Nile Delta, touching the southern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Extraordinarily fertile land. And why would Pharaoh permit this? Why would Pharaoh permit this? It was the snobbishness of the Egyptians. It was the very reason given by Joseph. They were snobs. Chapter 46, 33 and 34. When Pharaoh calls and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both you and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. And here it is. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Ooh, shepherds. Put them up there and, and let them take care of my sheep too. Ooh, shepherds. These Egyptians, they looked down their noses at these shepherds. And what that did was it kept them apart and it protected Jacob's family from intermarrying with the Egyptians. Now, I get it. Pharaoh gave Joseph a noble woman 
as his wife. But he had become enculturated by then into Egypt, become Egyptianized, I suppose. But here are these Hebrews, shepherds, lowly shepherds, stinky shepherds. Just put them up there. It prevented the Hebrews, the Israelites, from intermarrying and adopting the, the, the pagan cultural practices of Egypt. That was for the good of his people. Now, this has happened before in history, too. And I was, as I was thinking about this, think about the early years of this nation. In the horrific situation around slavery, but, but you know in the beginning that those slaves, though unjustly and harshly treated, amazingly, many heard the gospel. Sometimes even from their slave masters, which is just mind-boggling. But these believing slaves, under this horrific, abusive, and oppressive circumstance, many were, they encouraged one another. They were people set apart, right? They encouraged one another with songs of hope for what was eternal. Again, it doesn't excuse the slavery at all, but, but out of that came this, this rich heritage of Christian hope in these African-American spirituals, like, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Swing low, sweet chariot. Take my hand, precious Lord. Steal away to Jesus. Gospel train. And Mary, don't you weep. You know, you've heard some of these songs. They were oppressed. They cling to one another. They held on to eternal hope. Jacob's family was regarded as less than. You guys stay up there. God used that circumstance to, to cement their faith in the Lord. Now, our Christian faith does not call us to live a monastic life or, or to physically separate from the rest of the culture like the Amish. But... But we are, we are to consider ourselves spiritually set apart. Peter says this in his letter, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is set apart people. This is what you are, he's saying to Christians, using this Old Testament language that belonged to the Israelites. A chosen race, a, holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. To what end? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the purpose of that being set apart, the purpose of knowing that is our spiritual preservation so that we can have as a result of that preservation an effective proclamation of God's mercy and grace. And so to that end, we have, we have the church, the fellowship like this of the gathered assembly, so that we, when we gather, can hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. The very fact of the local church is God's faithfulness to us, because it is in the church, in the assembly, that we are stirred up, that we are provoked to live in such a way that gives testimony to our faith, love, and good works. And so that's why we don't neglect to gather as Hebrew says, the summer in the habit of doing. Rather, we, we think about this gathering as an opportunity to encourage one another as we wait for Christ to return. God is preserving us as his people. So an exhortation here, as we think about our own lives, Christian, be thoughtful and careful in your associations and the obligations of those associations. And of course, chief among those associations is your marriages, and so to be as yet unmarried. 
young people or widow, widower. It matters. It matters who you yoke yourself to. It matters. Someone who does not share your faith. And I'm not just talking about a kind of a, an oblique saying, well, I kind of believe in God. No, someone who does not put their whole confidence in Christ as Savior, do not yoke yourself to one such person. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? It's a rhetorical question. None. None. What fellowship has light with darkness? Also rhetorical. None. What accord is Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And the answer is none. Do not marry for love alone or for the love of the other person alone. Marry first for the love of God. And I think it would be wisdom here to add, do not get into business partnership for profit alone, but consider what honors the Lord first. These New Testament exhortations for being set apart, they are for our spiritual preservation. And they are evidence. They are evidence of God's chesed, his covenant love for his people. Well, finally, the evidence of God's covenant love, chesed, is his comfort. Comfort. We gravitate towards this. This isn't something that is unusual to any one of us. But if you're in pain, you may try to uh, medicate, right? It's analgesic. If you, you strain a muscle in your arm or leg, what do you do? You, you favor that appendage so as not to aggravate it further. Something as simple as if you work at a desk for your job and your chair hurts your back, you're going to get a different one, right? You're looking for some comfortable sitting position. If there's tension in a relationship, you try to talk it out. If a loved one dies, you can't bring them back. But it's healthy, right, to share the grief with others. And why do we do these things? The pain, the awkwardness, the, the, the tension in the relationship, the loss, it's natural to want to assuage these feelings. No one likes discomfort. I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard. We live to seek comfort, to, to reduce tension. To, we don't put ourselves in places that are unnecessarily burdensome or difficult. The goal may require it, but we don't want to live there for the rest of our lives, right? Short-term pain, and they say no pain, no gain. But pain for your whole life? Pain forever? Unresolved? No. It's natural to want to assuage those feelings. And in particular, when we see those we love experiencing that, we seek what we can do to comfort them, don't we? And God does that for his own. Jacob had experienced loss. Ten of his sons conspired to get rid of Joseph. We know that. They sold him to the Ishmaelites. He ends up in Egypt. They had concocted this lie that he had been torn by some kind of wild beast. And Jacob lived with that grief for years. Until the day his sons revealed that Joseph was still alive, second in command over Egypt. But then even when he found out Joseph was alive, was it not also deeply troubling that his sons actually lied all those years? Now when Jacob heard the Lord speak in that night vision, when he worshipped at Beersheba, he heard this promise, 
Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, he isn't just saying, you're going to die. He knew that. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And with all that doubt, is, is he really there? Will, will I see him? Joseph's, uh, Joseph's, Jacob's comfort from the Lord was that he would see his beloved son again. He would be there. His son would be there with him until his death. So we see this. And when Joseph went to meet his father, uh, father Jacob, in Goshen, Joseph presented himself to him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, I really don't know why. That's not the word he used, but now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. I take it that that was a monumental experience of comfort for his soul. To see Joseph before his own death, that's all that Jacob wanted. And the Lord fulfilled that promise with comfort. And perhaps the loss of Joseph that he experienced earlier was maybe the proverbial straw that weighed him down to the point of despair. I don't know. But you know, Jacob saw his entire life through that lens of suffering. That's in fact what he told Pharaoh when he met him. 47 verse 9, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. And this is what he says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Few and evil. Because they didn't attain to the life span of Isaac or Abraham, but few and evil. That's what he saw his life. Of course, Jacob suffered in many ways because of his own sin. He cheated his brother for the birthright. You'll recall that, Esau. He tricked his father, Isaac, for the blessing, taking it from Esau. He fled for his life from Esau. He pledged to kill him. He was engaged in a 20-year battle of wits with his father-in-law, Laban. And when he finally escaped Laban's grasp, he again feared Esau, who 20 years earlier said he was going to kill him. He had vowed to kill him. And now in his old age, God fulfills that promise to comfort him. Temporal comforts, to be sure. For the new covenant people of God, we who have trusted in Christ, God likewise assures us of his comfort. We can take that to heart. It's a supernatural working and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus promised to his disciples. And that comfort is for all who trust in Christ. This is what Jesus said to his disciples, and we can take this to heart for ourselves. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, in the King James, you might have older translations, might say comforter. Helper, to be with you, comforter, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, the Holy Spirit here is not a comforter in the sense of a, a warm blanket, as one commentator put but as an advocate, the word in the New Testament, parakletos, paraclete, helper. But what this means is that as a child of God, you're not going it alone. Whatever you're facing, you're not going it alone. Whatever circumstance that might bring anxiety or suffering or possibly despair, you're not going it alone. 
Now, Jesus did not promise a trouble-free existence following him in this life. He said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. And I know that many here know suffering of various kinds, disease, rejection, loss, and grief, maybe profound disappointments, not to mention the lingering consequences of our own sins of the past. But for all who are in Christ, we have a supernatural Holy Spirit comfort, an all-sufficient grace of God to sustain us even in the midst of suffering. Listen to the Apostle Paul's doxology at the beginning of his second letter to the Corinthian believers. And understand, Paul is one who suffered hideously in a physical sense. Rejection, abuse, stonings, and being shipwrecked. He suffered. But hear this doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, it's going to be hard. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. And that's a promise you can take to your deathbed. See, the ultimate comfort, if our hope is only for this life, if, if God takes away, you know, your disease, if God takes away, and he might, God resolves your poverty problem, if that relationship that was fractured is restored, but then, you, then there's nothing after, just a Christless eternity. What comfort is that, really? But since there is an eternity, and there is a, a place, either in the presence of the Lord, or in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, if we have the presence of the Holy Spirit pointing us, look to Christ, look beyond the grave. That's a comfort that no one can take away. And we have it because the Holy Spirit indwells us. We have it because the Holy Spirit indwells us because Christ died for us. We have it. And it cannot be taken away. So if you are suffering, if you are oppressed, abused, if you have experienced loss and grief, it's probably not as bad as those believing African slaves who sang songs of hope as they looked for glory land. We have the comfort of God. Well, significance, protection, and comfort. This is the proof of God's covenant love for you. And this has been secured for you in Christ. Jesus died because you mattered. And in dying, Jesus broke the power of sin to protect you ultimately from condemnation, but also to destroy the power of sin in, its, in the present. And Jesus rose from the grave to give you life and eternal comfort and the hope of that joy in a new body in Christ's presence forever. You are significant. God is protecting you. And you will receive eternal comfort because of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for all that you have done for us.
in your son. Thank you for revealing the beauty of your own goodness and character in this Bible time. And I pray that our hearts will be encouraged as a result of time in your word today. For the sake of Jesus, we pray.